0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org invite you to open your Bibles to Esther chapter 2. We do not have, it is Green Spring Sunday this morning, so we do not have any time for cute introductions or anything of that nature. We're just going to jump right in and get moving. I'm going to move fast this week, people. Let's go. Let's do this thing, all right? Last week, we entered into the world of Esther, which means we entered into the world of ancient Persia. It's a world where God seems to be absent. God isn't mentioned at all in this book of the Bible, and he seems to be completely Absent in Persia, we noticed in chapter one, is very present and seems to be very powerful. We met the king, the emperor Xerxes. We heard him called Ahasuerus. Do you say it in Hebrew? Ahashverosh, which we learned sounds like King Xerxes. Headache, And we will see more and more why the Jews gave him such a nickname as we continue on. But we're going to call him Xerxes. That's the most common name he's known by. And we met him, and he rules over all, killing or banishing anyone who would defy his rule. doesn't matter who they are, even if they are the queen herself. That's how chapter 1 ended, you may remember, with the banishment of Queen Vashti. And the, she, she was banished as a lesson to the entire empire What was that lesson? It was assimilate to Xerxes' vision of Persia. Everyone get in line, get on board with the way that Xerxes plans on everything going. Anyone who would resist that, consider yourself put on notice, even if you are the queen herself. like In this world, Persia seems so powerful. And to the Jews, the people of God who live in the empire of Persia, God seems powerful absent so what are they to do what are we to do we live in a world where persia our own cultures and kingdoms that surround us seem awfully powerful and god all too often seems absent as the people of god living in such a world what are we to do what were the jews to do keep on being jewish Follow the word of God, follow the law of God. If they follow the law, the law is designed to set the Jews apart as a people. It's designed to make them stick out. They don't eat like anybody else. They don't dress like anybody else. They don't worship like anybody else. It's designed to set them apart as the people who worship the one true God. That's a problem in Persia. That's a problem in any pluralistic society. Mike Cosper, in his uh, helpful book on Esther, he points out that the only real heresy, the only real sin in a pluralistic society like Persia is to insist that your religion is the one true religion. Persia's perfectly happy with you worshiping your own god. When they would go and they would conquer a nation they'd be like, "Sure, you can keep your god, just add him to the pantheon of all the Persian gods." That's fine. What was not fine was for you to insist that all those other gods were false and yours alone was the one true god. Such intolerance like that could not be tolerated. Sound familiar? Feel familiar? Like for the Jews, following the law of God meant that their entire way of life would go against the grain of Persia's pluralism. And through Queen Vashti, we've seen what happens to those who go against the grain, who, who break Persia's rules. And so the Jews don't resist. Over time, most of the Jews in Persia begin to blend in, to assimilate, to hide amongst the crowd. So what is God to do? What can God do with a people who are indistinguishable from Persia? What can God do with us if we're indistinguishable from our own culture? Like if we've assimilated, if we're able to hide amongst the crowd, would God even want to have anything to do with a people who compromise and hide? These are the questions that make us need Esther chapter 2. Because Esther chapter 2, when looking at those questions, Esther chapter 2 gives us hope. It gives us hope by showing us two things. First, I want us to see the compromise and compliance of God's hidden people. That's going to be set before us clearly, and we need to see it because when we see it, it helps us to assess our own lives and see, are there ways we've compromised with the culture around us? Are there ways we've become compliant? But this is not all that we see in Esther chapter 2. No, secondly, we also, I want us to see, see the grace and the good news of God's hidden purposes. See the grace and the good news of God's hidden purposes. So here's the plan. We're going to walk through Esther chapter 2, verses 1 through 18, seeing the compromise and the compliance of God's hidden people. That's going to be where we spend most of our time because that's what this chapter is about. But then, at the end, we will step back for just a second and see the grace and good news of God's hidden purposes. That's the plan. Let's go. So, first, see the compromise and compliance of God's hidden people. Esther chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 5. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away. This is Kish who had been carried away from Jerusalem, among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So, meet Mordecai. All right? He's a Jew, part of God's people, but immediately we know he's compromised. For three reasons. His name, where he lives, and his lineage. First, his name, Mordecai. It means worshiper of Marduk. It's a pagan god. This is a Persian name. He's compromised. This is how he's identified. This is how he's known. Secondly, we know he's compromised because of where he lives. He doesn't live in the Jewish quarter of the city where the majority of the Jewish population lived. He lives in the citadel, the walled-off area where primarily the Persian government is housed. It would appear that he wants to be involved in that government next week. We will see just how deep his involvement goes. Thirdly, we know he's compromised because of his lineage. We'll talk more in depth about his lineage next week because it is important. But right now, you just need to know it emphasizes his Jewishness. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. It ties him, his lineage ties him to King Saul. He's very, he's, he's a Jew of Jews. It emphasizes his Jewishness and it emphasizes the fact that he should identify with God's exiled people. Four times in verse six, the Hebrew word for exile is used. Emphasize. This is who he is. He's a part of God's people. He should identify with them in exile. That's his identity. That's who he is. But he's compromised. He's identified as a worshiper of Marduk, a faithful Persian government worker who's got nothing to do with the exiled Jews. Mordecai has blended in. Have we? He's hidden. Or are we, like as Christians, our identity is to be found in Christ? We're a people who belong to Christ. But is that how we are identified? Or do we hide? By compromise. We don't know why Mordecai compromised. He may have thought he had a good reason. Perhaps he's... He's trying to avoid danger or persecution or avoid danger or persecution for people in his care who we are soon to read about. Maybe he thinks he's got a great reason. Maybe he's got a very overtly bad reason for this. Like maybe he wants to gain power and prestige among Persia's government. Maybe, maybe he just wants to be more progressive and open-minded than his parents who clung to their ancient religion of a God who seems absent to him. Maybe his compromise wasn't even on purpose. Maybe he just didn't even critically engage the culture around him. He just accepted it. Bought what they bought. Enjoyed the entertainment that they enjoyed. Loved what they loved. Anything that the culture put out, he just kind of accepted it into his life uncritically. It was like, I don't know how anything that they're giving me could possibly be soul-shaping. I'm not saying that he should not take things from his culture, nor should we accept things from ours. But do we accept everything, entertainment, technology, or otherwise, uncritically? Or do we bring these things into our life through a lens of we are the people of God, and we will not be shaped by the things that the culture provides, but we will shape the way in which we engage the culture? Like all of these reasons, good, bad, neutral, otherwise, could be reasons that Mordecai compromised. All of these are reasons why we may compromise, assimilate, hide. For Mordecai, we don't know why he did. But through him, we see the compromise of God's hidden people. He becomes a mirror for us in which we can look and assess ourselves. Do we see compromise in our, ourselves? If we keep reading, we see more than just compromise. Look at verse 7. Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So finally, meet Esther. She's a Jew, but we immediately know that she has been compliant with her compromised uncle. We know that because of three things. Her name, where she lives, and her looks. Number one, her name. She should be called Hadassah. That's a Jewish name, and it was given to her by her Jewish parents. But her compromised uncle has chosen to change that name and call her Esther. That is naming her after a pagan goddess, just like he named himself after a pagan god, the goddess Ishtar, queen of heaven, goddess of love, sex, war, bloodshed, and political power. Things that all ring true to this story. He named her after Ishtar. He's trying to help her blend in just like him. That becomes even more obvious when you know that the name Esther, it sounds like a play on the Hebrew word Nistar. In Hebrew, Nistar means hidden. In other words, when Persians hear her name, they think good Persian citizen, named after pagan deity. When Jews hear her name, they think hidden. Like, is there any question at all about what Mordecai intended this name to do? And what will Esther do? Like, embrace her identity as part of the people of God? Or comply with the wishes of her compromised uncle? Will she be who she was born to be? Will she blend in? Will she be Esther or Hadassah? It appears that she has been raised to be compliant. That's what we see when we look at the second thing, where she lives. She doesn't live with her Jewish parents. She lives with her Jewish uncle, who pretends to be a Persian. He's raised, her parents are dead. He's raising her as his own daughter, and he raises her to be compliant with him. And she is. She does what he tells her to do. Again and again and again, if you'll read throughout this text, the author labors to make that point clear. Esther's compliant. She was raised that way. It gets most explicit in verse 20. Look down to verse 20. Scripture says, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. She's compliant, moldable. The third reason we know that is because of her looks. Nobody hate on me. I'm not saying that people that look good are compliant and moldable. The author points out her looks for a very specific reason. Verse seven, he said, Esther had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. We've heard those words before. You remember where? Chapter one about who? Vashti. The exact Hebrew phrase, in fact, is used in chapter one in verse 11 to describe Vashti. She's beautiful, lovely to look at. We're only told one other thing about Vashti. Beautiful, lovely to look at, and rebellious. She refuses the king. And so in chapter 1 and verse 19, we're told that the plan that the king's advisors come up with is we need a better Vashti. Like just as beautiful, just as lovely to look at, but someone who won't refuse. We need someone who will comply and so when the author tells us with the same words that Esther is beautiful and lovely to look at, he's hinting, this is going to be the better Vashti. For she is also compliant. We don't know why Esther is compliant, which by the way, I'm not ruining Esther for you, I promise. A lot of, I've been scared to death that a lot of the ladies would rise up and be like, how dare you? Esther should be enshrined as a heroine. That's what we've often done with her. A promise this isn't ruining it, it's making it better. The message of Esther, as it is, is better than we could imagine. We don't know why she was compliant. We can imagine perhaps she was eager to please those around her, wanted, wanted them to like her, people please her. That, I've been guilty of that my entire life. Maybe she was compliant because she felt like she didn't have a choice. It's the way things are. I don't have any other options. Or perhaps maybe she was just an obedient kid living in a confusing world where she was supposed to be Jewish but that had to stay hidden. Like she was really Hadassah but she had to present herself as, as Esther. Like all of these are reasons that she may have been compliant with the culture around her and all of these are reasons that we might be compliant to the culture around us. We want to please others, want them to like us. Perhaps we feel like there's no other option. Perhaps the culture around us simply confuses us and the easiest thing to do is just comply. All of these may be reasons we comply, we assimilate, we hide. For Esther, we may not know why she was compliant, but through her, we see the compliance of God's hidden people, and she becomes a mirror for us to look in and assess our own hearts and lives. Do we see compliance in our, ourselves? Compromise and compliance. Through the rest of chapter 2, we see just how deep the compromise and compliance of God's people will go in order for them to remain Hidden. It goes deep because there is a situation brewing in Persia. We skipped over it. It was described in verses 1 through 4. Three years have passed since the end of chapter 1 when Xerxes banished Vashti, and he's been distracted for those three years because he's been waging a war against Greece. But now he's home with his tail tucked between his legs because Greece defeated him soundly. And so he's home and he is moping with no wife to comfort him. Don't feel sorry for the guy. Like he's got access to all the women he could ever want. Make no mistake, Xerxes lives a life of sensuality and sexual indulgence. Like the history books are replete with examples of that. But he's still pouting because he has no one special. Like Vashti so, his servants dealing with this headache of a king, they propose a plan. Let's do an empire-wide search to get you a new bride, you know, via sex trafficking, basically. Let's take all of the young women, the young beautiful virgins. They had to be virgins. They couldn't have slept with anybody else because they can't have anybody to compare the king to. So let's get all the young beautiful virgins throughout the kingdom that we want And Xerxes, you sleep with them one by one, and then you pick whoever you think is the best. Verse 4 tells us that it pleased the king to seek his pleasure in this way. So this is what happens. Girls from all over the empire are taken, and we've already been told Esther was beautiful and lovely to look at. So it makes sense in verse 8 that Esther is also taken. And it's important to note right here at this moment that we are not told how any of these young women, including Esther, we're not told how any of them feel about their situation. Okay, we're not told if they are devastated to be captives or if they are elated at the chance to be queen. The historical evidence, if you look at the historical evidence, it shows that likely those feelings were mixed In other words, you had a breadth of feeling amongst them. Like Persia was known for forcibly conscripting its citizens into its service. And not just young women. No, they took 500 young men a year to castrate them and make them serve as eunuchs to the empire. Like Xerxes is an equal opportunity exploiter. He doesn't doesn't care. And this was normal in their culture. Kind of like if you imagine like a military draft is still normal in a lot of cultures, normal in our culture. And in a military draft, for those of you who experienced it, back during the Vietnam War, you probably had friends that were devastated when they were drafted. You probably had friends that were perfectly happy to serve. Forced service in the Persian Empire was similar. Why do I say all? I say all of that because... It is at this point in Esther's story that we normally start reading our own feelings into the book. Like this is where, scholars do this, this is where the commentaries go one of two ways. They split like a river. Because we start reading our feelings into the book. Some some scholars believe that Esther would have hated this situation, devastated by it, but She's faithful to the Lord. She's going to make the best of it, use it for good and for God. And so they see her and read her as a virtuous victim. And they enshrine her as as a heroine from beginning to end. This This was how I grew up with Esther in my Sunday school version of the book. Other commentators, believe it or not, go in the exact opposite direction. They view Esther as not faithful to God at all completely self-absorbed, and all about her self-preservation. She's just going to go along with them. She's going to eat whatever they give her. She's not like Daniel and his friends who are going to refuse the king's She's going to eat whatever they give her. She's going to do whatever they tell her. She's self-interested, looking out for her own well-being. And by the time you get to the end of the book, in chapters 9 and 10, she will have become bitter and bloodthirsty for revenge. Shades. None of that is in the text. In either direction. We must be careful when we read Scripture. We must be careful when we read Esther not to read our own feelings into it lest we miss its meaning. And its meaning is where power is. Its meaning is where the very voice of God is. I don't want to use Scripture as an echo chamber to hear what I already think. I want my mind to be renewed by this word and to be transformed. Don't read your feelings into Esther. Read the truth out of it because I promise that the truth is more hopeful and more helpful than either option of Esther being perfect heroine or bitter avenger. The truth is better. It's gospel, glorious truth, a story of transformation. I'm getting ahead of myself. We can't get there. That's coming. We aren't told how anyone feels at this point in the story. We aren't told how Mordecai feels about letting Esther go. We aren't told about how Esther feels about going. So regardless of whatever she did feel, this is what we do know from the text, that when she arrived at the palace, she thrived. All the women were put under the care of a eunuch named Hegai. He's the king's eunuch. And in verse 9, we get a description of Esther's relationship with Hegai. Look at it with me. And the young woman, Esther, pleased Haggai and won, that's actively, won his favor. And he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace. And he advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Why did Esther please Haggai? Why, why did she win his favor. It's this man's job to find Xerxes someone better than Vashti. That's just so, his life depends on that. Xerxes is the kind of guy that executes engineers when their bridges fail. That's a true story. He's the kind of guy that executes generals when they lose a the war. He's certainly the kind of guy that will execute his beauty consultant when he doesn't find him a new bride. This guy's sole mission is to find the better Vashti, someone beautiful and lovely to look at, but who won't refuse, who's compliant, who will work hard to do whatever you ask of her. And here comes Esther. Not just doing whatever Haggai asks, not just submitting to his wishes, but actively seeking to win his favor, to please him. And she's beautiful to boot. So he moves her to the front of the line. (laughs) Let's get Xerxes pleased faster. Verse 15, I think, makes it the most obvious that this is why Haggai is pleased with Esther because she is ultimately compliant. So basically, by the time we get to verse 15, all of these ladies, they've gone through a year-long beautifying process. You can read about it described in verses 12 to 14. We shouldn't be surprised that these people don't do a spa day, they do a spa year. Like This is Xerxes who throws a six-month party. Of course he's going to ask that all of these ladies be like cosmetic up like crazy for a year. So they go through that, and then after the year, they get one night with the king. Yes, that means exactly what you think it means. And they could take with them whatever they wanted to try to please this man. Man is a generous term. They they could take jewelry, flowers, musical instruments, food, gifts, whatever. And after their night with the king, they would be sent to a second harem that was for concubines, not wives, but women whose sole existence was meant for the king's sexual pleasure. And there they would live out their days in lonely luxury. Never getting a night with another man, because they can't have a man to compare the king to, never getting a night with the king himself again unless he calls for her by name. So after this year-long process, when Esther's turn comes, what will she do to win favor in the eyes of a king who fancies himself a god? Look at verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, that's the author going, remember, she's a Jew, remember that the daughter of Abihel, who was the uncle of Mordecai, Mordecai who had taken her as his daughter. In other words, remember, she's been raised to be compliant. When it came her turn to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Hey, guy, your job is to make sure that Xerxes' sexual desire is satisfied. And so Esther looks to him to say, what jewelry do I wear? What do I take with me? What do I say? What do I do? Unlike Vashti, who defied Xerxes' desires, Esther aims to fulfill them. She's the anti-Vashti, the anti-type here. And her anti-Vashti compliance Wins her favor in the sight of all. Everybody's like, look at Esther. She's beautiful, check. Lovely to look at, check. She's even better than Vashti. She wants to make Xerxes happy. And that makes all of them happy because when Xerxes is happy, everybody's happy. That's exactly what unfolds in verses 16 to 18. Xerxes chooses Esther over all others he crowns her as queen, we're specifically told, instead of Vashti. And then Xerxes does what Xerxes does best. He parties. Look at verse 18. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Xerxes is happy. So everybody's happy. Literally, there's like this trickle-down effect he's happy because in Esther he has found the perfect Persian. That's what he was looking for, right? One who will get in line and assimilate. He's found the perfect Persian in her, so all of Persia celebrates. Shades, do we see just how far the compromise and compliance of God's people has gone to help them stay hidden. There is a turning point in the story coming. We're not there yet. See just how far it's gone to help them stay hidden. And that's got to beg the question for us, how far, how far does my own compromise and compliance go with the culture around me? Like, do I uncritically consume what the culture has to offer? Am I just confused by the culture around me? So I just end up complying with what it wants because that's easier? Like, are, are we hidden to the point that this world is willing to celebrate us as perfect Persians? It sees us as perfect citizens of the present age because it cannot even tell that we are actually citizens of an age and a kingdom to come. Are we Esther? or Hadassah. It's the title of our whole series because that is the question that lands at the front door of the people of God in this book. When all the chips are down, when you hit the greatest pressure point, who are you? Are you mine? Are you my people? Are we Esther? Are we Hadassah? She was born to be a part of the people of God. We have been reborn to be a part of the people of God. Do we embrace that identity, or do we compromise and comply and hide? And what do we influence other people to do? Mordecai makes me ask that question in this passage, right? Like, Mordecai is the one that bears the brunt of the guilt here, doesn't he? Because he doesn't just hide his own identity. He raises Esther, influencing her to hide hers as well. As a parent, like, I have to ask myself, am I Mordecai to my children? Like teaching them, yeah, we're a part of the people of God, and that's cool here at home, and that's cool at shades. But then everything else I do in life helps them just to look like perfect Persians. They watch what I buy, they watch what entertainment I view, they watch what I do with every ounce of my time. Am I shaping them to compromise and comply with the culture around them? Is that, is that how we affect our grandchildren? Is that how we affect our friends or coworkers or classmates? Like do we encourage the people of God around us to be Esther or Hadassah? Here's the deal. All of these questions, all of these questions, they can end up, I think, if this is all we see here, they, these questions can make us feel guilty, helpless? Hopeless? Because that's honestly, that's how things look right about now in Esther chapter 2. But this is where, right here at the end, we've got to step back for just a moment and see one more thing one more thing. Yes, Esther chapter 2 primarily makes us see the compromise and the compliance of God's hidden people, but when we see this chapter as a part of the whole book of Esther, a second picture begins to emerge. See it with me. Second thing, see the grace and good news of God's hidden purposes. See the grace and the good news of God's hidden purposes. What hidden purposes? What in purposes does he have? We are just around the corner in this book from a genocidal threat coming against God's people. We're going to get there next week. It's going to be a threat to wipe out the entirety of the Jewish people. And here in Esther chapter 2, God is providentially, we talked about providence heavily last week, God is providentially moving Esther and Mordecai into perfect position through which he will work his salvation. Like, do you see the grace of this? Mordecai is compromised. Esther is compliant. They both look like perfect Persians. What can God possibly do with a people indistinguishable from Persia? What would He even want to do with a people who compromise and hide? Shades. See the grace of God. Mordecai and Esther may have forgotten him, but he has not forgotten them. And God is going to graciously work through them for his glory and the the good of his people. He's even going to work through their compromises and every place that they have complied with the culture around them. He's going to redeem all of those things. What wondrous grace is this that while they are still compromised, God's grace is working for them. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? That sounds gospel familiar to me. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, while we were compromised and compliant, Christ died for us. He showered his grace upon us. God's not waiting for Mordecai to be transformed or for Esther to be transformed or for either of them to clean up. And he's not waiting for us to clean up. He is active, working his gracious purposes in their lives right now in this very moment. This, Shades, is where we see the gospel good news of Esther chapter 2. This is where the fact that Mordecai is compromised and Esther is compliant, this is where that is more helpful and more hopeful than if they were perfect heroes. Because the fact that God would graciously use broken people like them means that he will graciously use broken people like us. Shades, see the grace and the good news of God's hidden purposes in Esther chapter two. God loves to make Hadassahs out of Esthers. Esthers just like you and just like me. He loves to take them and transform them. We will see how that transformation is gonna take place even in the midst of Persia, how that transformation can take place in the midst of us, in the midst of our own culture We're going to see that in the coming weeks. Let's pray together. Father, we love you and we are grateful for your great grace towards Esther, towards Mordecai, because it means that there is hope and great grace that you pour out towards us. Father, I pray that no matter how compromised or compliant we feel with the culture that is around us, I pray that everyone in this place would know that they are not too far gone, that you are at work even now. In the midst of right where they are, you are at work and you can redeem every mistake they feel like they have ever made. Use it all for your glory and their good, their joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.